dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Our Lord doesn't call leaders to lead just in their businesses. He calls them to lead in their families as well. And in fact, it's especially in the family that the depths of who we are are tested and tried and where our leadership most intimately links us to our God. It was no different for King David. As he confronted the real struggles in his family, he also had to find his own peace with God. Hello, everybody. It's so good to be on retreat with you, to have these just few hours to dedicate to reading together from the Bible all about King David. And today I want to focus in on a subject that really is at the heart of many, and that is the struggles King David had in his family. And I, I, I underscore this especially because for those of you who lead in the world of commerce and of business, of, of society and in, in your professional lives, this can sometimes be the, the, the dark horse right behind you that just won't let you go. And that is that no matter how successful you are in the eyes of so many people in the world of business and enterprise, um, a lot of times we're just haunted by the fact that we don't feel like we really nailed it with our children, just to be honest with you. And that failure with our kids just gnaws at our hearts. It, it can be, it's, it's almost like you, you feel like the most important thing was something that you sacrificed in order to get to the most necessary of things, right? The most necessary thing, it's that you, you, you make enough money to put them through school, you make enough money to retire nicely, and you know, you, you provide for yourself. And the thing is, is that in many of our jobs, that has its own like set of demands. You can't get to even that basic level, so to speak, of meeting the needs that you need without putting in an immense amount of time. I'm looking out at you and I'm thinking of the different entrepreneurs who have started your own business and you end up marrying the business, right? One time there was a, a French general who was retiring and at the retirement speech, they had this, this big uh, celebration and everybody was there. And so he, he made this funny joke because he said, you know, I'd like to thank my wife uh, for tolerating the fact that I've had a mistress for the past 40 years, you know, and everyone kind of gasped. And then he said, you know, that's how my job has been. My job has been that type of dedication and required that type of dedication. And so then, you know, they all laughed, re realizing that he wasn't talking about a person, but he was talking about his work. But it, so some of us don't find it quite so funny. <laughs> you know, like that strikes a little bit close to home there. And, and that's because it does, right? You, you, we realize that when we start our own businesses, so many times they just eat us up. 
We all know the stories of Elon Musk sleeping in his office, you know, underneath his desk, you know, uh, for, for, and the stories of him staying at work, sometimes working 36 hours straight, etc. And every time that we say yes to something, we say no to something else. And so behind every person who's successful in, in the world of business, there's a lot of unsuccessful things that they could have been successful at. And sometimes they're minor things, right? Like I, I never got to be the shot put thrower that I always wanted to be. <laughs> I never got to, you know, raise that tadpole collection that I was just really hoping to have one day. But we know that that kind of stuff doesn't really matter, right? Like that's, that's just necessary. In order to be any one thing, you cannot be everything. But sometimes what we've had to sacrifice to get to where we are is actually the most important of things, the things that we shouldn't have sacrificed or we don't feel that we should have sacrificed, right? And that's, of course, our family. Because it, no matter how successful you are, money can't buy you love. And we all know that, you know. It, and so while you can't eat love either, the family is the reason why we do everything that we do. Because what we, when we work, we form who we are. And, but the place where we celebrate who we are and where we give who we are away in, in a gift of ourselves, that's in the family. And so work ends up becoming the place where actually we're practicing for the family, okay? When we go to work every day, it's to make us better at better people, yes, but the better people that we become at work it's, it's, in very, it's in various skills. It's in our listening ability. It's in our ability to, to speak clearly. It's in our ability to organize efficiency. But all of that's a, at a superficial level in, in who we are. The, the depths of who we are aren't formed at work. The depths of who we are, I mean, the real qualities of the soul, they're formed by love. And by love for our family, for our children, for our wives. For, for the dedicated love that goes on in good times and in bad and in sickness and in health, for better or for worse and for richer or for poorer, that's really where the person shines. And that's really, of course, where we're supposed to be living. That means that, yes, our leadership at work is a very important thing. And it will hone us, sharpen our skills for that all-important thing which is the communion of life and love called the family. The family is where God reigns over us because nothing will, will call you to a greater depth and challenge you more profoundly than the family, which is why so many people just prefer just to, to cut down the number of kids they have and just give themselves over to work because frankly, it's easier. And I know that many people feel challenged by that and that's okay. Sometimes the gospel challenges us, you know. But the fact is, when you have to give yourself in a sacrificial love that's dedicated for a lifetime in an unconditional way, there's nothing on earth and there's nothing in work that's going to push you that far or challenge you that deeply. But that's where the family leadership rises and where God gives you a grace to engage your family with him in order to meet him at the depths of challenge. 
on the other side of your challenge and of being pushed as profoundly as four kids under four will push any human being, right? As profoundly as that is, that's exactly where God's sanctifying you. And I think it's so cool to, when you read the Bible, see that King, it was no different for King David. Now, King David actually was also challenged by God in his family. Here he was, the greatest king of the Bible, and yet his family was an absolute failure. And you wonder if his family wasn't an absolute failure in part because he put such priority on his political role as king of Israel. And we're going to look at that because it's all throughout the Bible there in the story of David. And the heartbreak that he went through can teach us a lot about what we go through in our own families and how God will meet us there. Father Nathan is producing an ongoing source of videos to form, unite, and inspire you and your family. Go to eagleeyeministries.org. That's E-A-G-L-E-E-Y-E ministries.org. And subscribe to Eagle Eye Pro. Subscribe today. Let's take a look together at, at the story of David and how God played out in his family uh, the balance between the work that he was called to do as the political leader of the kingdom and the work he was called to do as dad. <laughs> Something that he just didn't do real well, to be honest with you. But let's take a look at that together. Uh, before, always before we read the word of God, let's just ask God's blessing upon us and upon this retreat in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, Father of the poor, illumine the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we see, uh, what, remember what happened to David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You've got the fall of David with Bathsheba. And that's, of course, it's a terrible fall. And it's interesting to note that one of the reasons why he fell morally is because he was not being attentive to his role as king. If you look at 2 Samuel 11, it says, verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. That's a very indicative statement because what it means is that David was not doing his job. He'd lost the discipline of work. He is taking it easy. This is where we see that our life at work and our leadership at work is actually there to hone us and it's, it's not to replace the family, but if we live it well and live it correctly, it can certainly keep us disciplined about the things that we're supposed to be doing. 
when everything's going well and we got a nice little profit built up for us and we, our crops are in, be careful. It's not the time to let up and act like somehow work was just there in order to give us a comfortable life. Work is there as my gift and my covenant with God. And by being faithful to my job and faithful to the labors that he's given me to do, I cooperate with God in a very profound way. Work keeps me humble. And here, when all the kings are supposed to go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem and he sent his army without him. And his army was doing a great job. And it was then that David fell. We know so famously with Bathsheba. Well, so he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. This is verse 27, uh, 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So in walks Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet confronts him and then says, now therefore, as the punishment for David's sin in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have be despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword shall never despise or depart from your house. So the, the punishment for David's sin is that his family will be violent. And boy, do we ever see that play itself out in the chapters that follow. It might surprise you to know that all told, David had, is listed in the Bible, 20 sons. Okay, those are by his queens. That doesn't even mention the number by his con concubines. 20 sons. <laughs> 20 sons. Now, it only mentions one daughter named Tamar, but it would, it would stand to reckon that if you have 20 sons, odds are you have more than just one daughter. And again, that doesn't even mention the children by all the concubines that he had. So with 20 uh, descendants to the throne, you can imagine, and the throne being the only throne over Israel, the violence and the jealousy and the corruption that existed in his court, uh, it, it just it boggles the mind. And it, David was not uh, immune to that. Doesn't that. Isn't that amazing that a man of God like King David, who's been called by God, who's been loved by God the way he has, and, and who has a covenant with God. I mean, Jesus Christ will be called the son of David. Jesus Christ himself will come from his lineage in, in the flesh. And yet he was so flawed that as king, he couldn't even keep his own children to have that same love and faith in God that he had. When he was a youth, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet. Remember how beautiful that was in front of all of his foes? And then he stood up to Goliath, the, the bad, huge giant, and he slew him in the name of the Lord. He was someone whose heart was steadfast in front of God. He, he brought up the Ark of the Covenant and danced in front of the Ark recklessly in front of everybody, making a fool of himself in order to honor and praise God's presence in his country. He wanted to build a temple for God. I mean, this was not a man who did not have religion. This is not a man whose, whose soul was somehow far from God. This was King David who sang, who wrote the Psalms. I mean, he, <laughs> this is again, like pretty amazing guy. 
It was from his heart that sprung forth the inspired word of God, all of the prayers of the Psalms. And he, he played the lyre for the king of Israel. He loved God. When he, was, when he was being persecuted by Saul, he had the chance to kill the king of Israel twice. And he didn't, saying, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. He had the gift of fear of the Lord. He had the, a gift of governance according to God. He united all the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, this was a, a man after God's own heart. He was a hero in terms of faith, even though he had huge flaws. Now, I'm not going to get into here about sin. We all know mortal sin exists, and we know that with mortal sin, you lose the state of grace and that you need to avoid mortal sin like the plague. We also know that every act that we do engages the fullness of our freedom. And so that, yes, even though you're a really good person, you can still lose God's grace and suffer the pains of eternal punishment by it. It's called mortal sin. It's what we want to avoid. But this is not the point the Bible's trying to make. And we don't have to judge David's uh, inner state of grace. But what we can say here is that the Bible is pointing out to us that even such a great man as David had internal difficulties with his children and lost control of them. It ended up that a total of three of his children would die during his lifetime. Three of his sons would die. And the fourth son would be executed shortly after David's death because he was trying to usurp David's throne from his brother who was supposed to be the rightful king. Brother against brother, murder. Uh, you have even a case here in David's family of incest. Terrible. And all of that happens under the watch of this incredibly great person. First point I want to make to you is that a struggle with your children and a struggle in your family it's something that you can't control from the outside. And it will bring you to your knees because there's nothing we want more than our children being happy and holy and knowing God. And so it hurts so badly when we can't have that and it seems like they're out of our control. Remember this though. It's a battle that you can face with God. Whenever we don't have control over our things in our own life, it's a call for us to surrender more deeply to the loving control and power of God. There's a battle here in the hearts of his family that David can't seem to control, but it does drive him towards a union with God, a humility, a surrender that may just be what saves his soul in the end. Father Nathan has founded the St. John Institute, the MBA program that develops students into the leaders of tomorrow by giving them a missionary's heart and an entrepreneur's mind. Visit our website at stjohninstitute.org. Dare great things for Christ. You know, the story of David's struggles in his family, I mean, it's throughout, you know, a lot of this, but... If you look at it, especially in 2 Samuel chapters 14 to 19, okay, and you've got so much happening here that uh, I really can't take you through it in detail, but I invite you to go back to your rooms and read 
2 Samuel 14 to 19. Because what spells itself out there is just absolutely dreadful. Of course, you have um, a, a terrible uh, situation of, of abuse of a brother and a sister. Uh, and that, that abuse leads to vengeance in the heart of Absalom who waits two years until he kills his brother. And even though David was upset because of what happened in the family, he at the same time doesn't really intervene, doesn't say anything. And so he fails as a father. He should have stood up immediately and, and, and taken the, the side of the, the right one here. And he doesn't. And Absalom ends up taking justice in his own hands, which is, of course, another terrible thing, kills his brother. And then David doesn't forgive Absalom officially. There's even a scene where after years of not talking with Absalom, as Absalom's going off and doing different things, David ends up bringing Absalom into Jerusalem, but refuses to let him come into his presence. So what's that all about? It's like he wants to be a dad just kind of part-time. You know, Absalom, just come on over. Uh, I'll just give you a house in Jerusalem, but I'm not going to talk to you. You know, and, and you can see he's conflicted because at one point Absalom does come in to finally talk with him. And it says that the king gave him a kiss, a sign of peace and forgiveness. Like his heart wants to be there, but he's a broken man on the inside. And he lacks the skills that he needs to really govern his family. It turns out poorly. Absalom ends up rebelling against his father, taking the throne for himself, taking the throne for himself, and then trying to kill his dad. And King David is, is thrust out, trying, uh, running away to save his life uh, with his army, and withdrawing from Jerusalem. It finally turns out that, of course, Absalom famously gets his hair caught in a tree, and then David's chief generals thrust at his heart with a pike and kill him. They report it back to David, who bursts into a copious tears so badly that the general of his army has to go and say, David, you cannot keep weeping like this for a rebel. You have to pull yourself together or the kingdom will be lost. And so David pulls himself together and life goes on all the way until his other son tries to usurp his throne again. It's what the prophet Nathan told him would be the consequence of his sin, that the sword would not depart from his house. And yet what happens through all of this? All of these many trials that David has to endure. What, why would God put such an incredible king who has led armies into battle, who knows how to besiege cities, right? Like this is no, this is no powder puff, King David. He knows how to do things. I mean, he has 20 sons. This is a successful person. He has, he has the court going on. He, he, he judges cases. He defeats kings. He's running a country and yet his own family relationships are falling into nothing. I think all of us see in this uh, a real kind of, um, as a fear that we have in our hearts because we've been successful. We're out there every day killing it in the office place and we figured out our sales and we figured out our HR and we figured out our strategy and now we're executing against it and we're doing a succession plan and you know, 
Congratulations, you can do all of those things and it's taken a lot from us. But we realize that the family life itself has a different dynamic. Something else is required of us. And I think a lot of us are afraid that we just don't have what's required. And we can say to ourselves, why would God allow me who've done so many things, I've given so much money to the church, I've had priests over for dinner, you know, and yet my family is, is, isn't where it needs to be. How do I bring faith to my kids? Well, I want to first of all say it's never too late. One thing we remark about David in all of this is that he never stops. Never does it say that then King David threw up his hands and said, I have failed in my family life. Failure is not an option. We, we simply cannot stop everyone. Everyone. What David does is he pivots and every chance that he gets, he tries to make the right decision. And even though he might not always do such, he's do, he does his best to remedy. And we can too. It's not because of our past that our futures is set. It's, it's because of God's mercy that we know the trajectory of where we're going in our life. We need to look to God's mercy make the confessions we need to make, and then make up for it as powerfully as we can. Sometimes you say, well, my children are already grown. Let me tell you, there's nothing more powerful than a grandpa or a grandma. In the life of their grandchildren, your influence is enormous if you use it. And here I just would encourage you. Here's a little thing that I tell families all the time. Take your grandchildren out for breakfast or for lunch or for whatever on their 13th birthday or their 18th birthday or their 21st birthday, whatever you want to do. You take them out and sit them down and say, listen, there's something I got to tell you. And you do it one-on-one. -on -one. It's a very powerful moment. And you say, I am a Roman Catholic and I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that no matter what mistakes you can make in your life, his mercy found in the sacrament of confession is bigger. And you give them that witness and you say, I expect you to look for Christ and to ask Christ into your heart. Oh my gosh. It's an immense thing. They'll never, ever forget that moment. The fact is, my friends, you can succeed. Just like David, it might be by humility and humiliation. But in the end, if you invite God into your house as the head of the house, he will come. Do not give up hope. God is more powerful than sin, even the sin of a father. Dare great things for Christ. It's not easy to be a young Catholic today. A lot of our friends don't understand our faith, and sometimes we don't even really know what the whole purpose is. That's why I started Eagle Eye Ministries. By going to our website, eagleeyeministries.org, you'll learn all about retreats, outdoor excursions, and opportunities to grow deeper in your faith, make great Catholic friends, and find out why you should stay Catholic. Visit us at eagleeyeministries.org.